Greetings, and welcome to a very special takeover edition by Mr. Saturday Night and Cosmodelica on the Lot Radio and Worldwide FM. I'm Colleen Cosmo Murphy, and joining me is... Uh, this is Eamon Harkin from Mr. Saturday Night. And we're set up to a really interesting show. The first hour, I'm going to interview Eamon about his kind of musical club inspirations and a little bit of his story about dance music and how he got involved in clubs and, and vice versa. Right, yeah. I'll, I'll attempt to do the same in the second hour. I don't know if I'll do as good a job as you do, uh, Colleen, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> Sounds good. So let's wind back to Northern Ireland where you grew up. What got you into music in terms of dance music? Um, well, you know, it, 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 it took me a while to actually get into dance music. I grew up um, in the 80s and 90s in a place called Derry in the northwest of uh, Northern Ireland. And, and it's not necessarily a place known for its like pump and club life, is it? <laughs> not really. I mean, yes and no. Like, generally no, but then there was these um, sort of, like, big clubs. There was a place called Kelly's in Port Rush, which is kind of like a seaside town, like, north of Derry, that was, like, a huge um, kind of, like, house and trance club. Um, and, you know, for some reason, like... That, that kind of like housey trance sound has always been um, quite big in Ireland. And I actually think that's that kind of was really off-putting to me mm -hmm. to begin with. Of course, yeah. Um, so when I was first getting into music, it was all it was all guitar music, um, kind of grunge. It was like it was the time of grunge, yeah. right? So like all the bands. All the sub-pop bands from Seattle and everything. Right. Yeah. So basically Derek, there was just a scene in Derry trying to copy that. Mm -hmm. Um, myself included very very badly um, but you know one of the like formative experiences when I was in um, the equivalent of high school was they would send you out in work experience and there was a a place in Derry called the Nerve Center where um, I think it was kind of like a non-profit sort of semi-government funded place for young people to like learn about music and John O'Neill from the Undertones worked mm. there and so I asked to do something in music and they sent me there for a week and I just like followed him around and he told me all about the music industry. That's and, like, amazing. Told That's me about, a like, really good mentor. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a very short, it was a very short mentorship, but it was really um, exciting and opened my eyes to like, mm -hmm. um, like one path in music that wasn't commercial success, right? Because at this time it was kind of like you'd watch sort of top of the pops at home and or you sort of made it or you, it, it wasn't clear what happened to you if you didn't <laughs> if you didn't get on top of the pops yeah. um so anyway that that um that really like made me think more about different possibilities and then um yeah, it, was, it wasn't until I moved to London. I went to university in London. It wasn't Where did until you go I in London? Which university? Uh, UCL, University College mm -hmm. London, um, to study engineering. Um, because I was still, like, trying to be, like, responsible and sensible and, like, you know, <laughs> still thinking I had to get a proper job and all of that. Um, but being in London and being surrounded by a version of dance music that wasn't commercial trance music, like, really opened my eyes to the to the other possibilities. And which years were you in London? Um, so I went to 
I was in London from 95 to 2003. Okay, so we crossed so, over a bit because I moved there in 1999. So which clubs right. and parties were you going to? Um, so I would go to um, Errol Alkin's Trash. Oh, that was at great. The, at, at the, the end, end on Monday nights. And yep. as a student, like, Mondays were, you could go out Monday to 4 o'clock in the morning. It was fine. Yeah, you know? it was absolutely fine. Um, Giles Peterson's parties at, at Dingwall's in mm -hmm. Camden. Um and the original plastic people on Oxford Street. Oh my gosh, yeah, um, place. Yeah. Fantastic. Which was really, really great. And then just fabric was like, in the early days of fabric going early there Early days of fabric were fantastic. It was yeah. like the best big club in London. Right, You know. yeah. Did and programmed so well. Yeah, and, and the crowd is really, really great. Um, so that was like kind of the days when James Lavelle was a mm. was a resident. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually doing an event with James Lavelle and oh, really? uh, yeah in London on Tuesday. Did, did you watch that documentary? I haven't him? yet. Yeah, I really need to. Really, don't I? It's really good. Yeah. It's really really good. He's an interesting bloke. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's been through many twists he and turns. He sure has. Yeah. I'm just wondering, Jukes, your song's about to run out. Is there a song that you want to play that's kind of reminiscent of those London days? Something that uh, was really important to you? Um. Y y yes. So. In amongst the mix, one of the things I haven't mentioned is that um, uh, as I was getting into dance music, I was, I, you know, I was a little put off by the sort of commercial, sort of dance music, um, sort of thing that I was seeing, mm. and so DJs that didn't necessarily play dance music were quite appealing to me, and and hence going to to see Errol at Trash, but Optimo were also huge um huge inspiration for me at that time and very uh, creative djs yeah and i and i've learned so much from them um in in, in many regards in terms of like djing putting on parties mm. promoting um and just learned a lot about music from them mm -hmm. and so i'd always go and see them in london and my sister was in drama school in glasgow so i'd go and see her and go to optimo and just the experience of going to those parties as a regular Sunday party were also quite... And Glasgow's quite a great music city. Amazing it's music such city. a great music city yeah. and it has such a great vibe. In fact, I would say Glasgow reminds me more of Brooklyn. And every time I would go to Glasgow, I mean, just even seeing the brownstones and all yeah. that, there was a certain kind of a, a likeness there. But it was actually the attitude of the people. Right. Because I had moved from Brooklyn to the UK to London and then I'd go up to play in Glasgow and I always just... Really got on really well with the Glaswegians. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love I love going to Glasgow. It actually reminds me a little bit about of um, of Derry, where I'm from, as mm. well. Um, Celtic vibe. Yeah, there's a real kind of like no nonsense mm. um, sort of spirit. You know, yeah. it's a real blue collar working class mm. town, but yet at the same time, you know, they they know they know what's good. They know their music. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that's a great combination. Well, know? let me play something from Optimo then. Yeah, so I'm actually going to play um, uh, a track uh, called Flex Tone by mm -hmm. Liquid Liquid, which is ah. obviously a New York band um, from the 70s and 80s. So we're previewing that New York, uh, New York connection coming right. up. Um, but it's a JD Twitch edit nice. um, that he did for Rush Hour. It's, it's quite old, actually. It's probably like 15 years old, but it's, it's a great track. Great, so let's put it on. It
Rage Bolton remakes of Super Fight by Shannon. Maurice was here in New York at the same time that I was. And we both moved to the UK about the same time, about 1999. Right. So now we're going to talk about you leaving the UK and going to the Big Apple. So what was it that drew you here? Um, well, it was it was a job, actually, that was that was not related to music. Um, you know, I, I, I went and did the, like, serious, sensible degree at university. Mm-hmm. And then transitioned into the, the sensible, serious job doing um, computer programming and, and web design. Oh my goodness. And um, like, you know, did that for a number of years. Um, and it was fine, but it was, you know, it wasn't really that exciting to me. for you. And, and, you know, I, at the same time I was buying records and I was doing small parties uh, around East London. to like you know, um, satiate that interest in music and then I got offered a job in New York with a visa um, and lucky since, you that's yes, gold dust it, absolutely and, and, and I think I just was like well you know I don't really have um, you know I've got friends and family here but I'm young and I want to I'm still trying to figure out what, what I want to do so why don't I just do this and, and see where it goes um, so I moved here and didn't know anybody other than people I was working with. So kind of put a lot of energy into going out and going to parties. Um, and had always had a really like romantic um, vision of New York. Of course, um, as does everybody. As does everybody, as do many, many, many Irish people. In particular, yeah, because all that whole, well, you, can, you know, my name, so um, you can tell uh, well, I'm, I'm from the Boston Irish, right, not right. the New York Irish, but yes, yes, there is a relationship that's gone on for about 150 years. Yeah, or so. exactly. It's been, it's been, it's been good, good to the Irish. Yeah. Um, and so, just this idea of like going to New York was hugely exciting, and going to the place where all this music that I loved and was a big part of my life was from. So I came here um, and threw myself into that. But um, weirdly, I came, you know, 18 months after 9/11, when Giuliani had really like done, completed the job of closing all the yeah. all the clubs. So I was actually a little um, perplexed as to, you know, why the scene wasn't wasn't bigger. Um, I mean, there was still cool stuff going on. Um, but it was harder to find. But it was still, it was still an amazing place to be, and it was still a real adventure for me. So it just, you know, got into it. But I think that's kind of interesting what you said about Giuliani, because I left after he was, you know, starting to kind of decimate the whole club scene here and with the cabaret license and everything else. But what I found when I came back in the early noughties when you had arrived here is that there was a certain amount of daring do. I mean, there's a whole DIY ethos that and people migrated to Brooklyn and they started throwing their own parties. And it's right. just, just absolutely incredible because it just kind of got away from the whole commercial aspect of clubs and parties and made it more underground again and but much more DIY and a lot more fun. Right. Well, I, I, I think ultimately the, the state of, of things um, was... That kind of sort of assessment of things being a little in a weird place and a lot of things haven't been shut down and, and, and sort of died off mm-hmm. um, 
when I met Justin, that was kind of one of the things that we bonded over. It was like, well, w what's going on here? Um, this is New York City. We're supposed to have the most amazing, vibrant, dynamic nightlife, and it's, it's a little tricky to find that right now. Mm -hmm. um, and there was no clubs to do parties in, and the clubs that were still around were, were frankly difficult to work with. Mm. Um, and so that really spurned us to like go into lofts and go into um, yard spaces and rooftops and um, warehouses and, and all of that and just and just started from scratch like literally every aspect from you know running the bar hiring the bartenders loading in the speakers the, you know the yeah. whole the whole thing um, oh I know all about that yeah right <laughs> yeah but it, it was so there were there was some um, there, there was a real and obviously we weren't the only people doing it but but the people that were doing parties most of them had to do that mm -hmm. so it really felt like um, there was a lot of starting from scratch well, why don't we uh, pick up on that after we play another song? I see you have something from UR queued up, which yes. is funny because I almost picked a UR track as uh, well because absolutely just massive for me. So well, what, tell us what about what I you mean, UR. I mean, just the music of Detroit generally mm. is just so so important to me as a DJ. Um, just the 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 output from that city over the years is just phenomenal, and uh, you know. Yeah, kind of lost for words for how, exactly. how amazing it is. But I, I love I love UR in particular, and I, you know I think I my love affair with the music of New York came first, and then that sort of led to to um, my interest in the music of Detroit. But I picked this track because I think it really exemplifies how melodic um, UR mm. can be, which mm -hmm. is not necessarily. Uh, people that know YAR know that they, they can be melodic, but people like maybe don't. Like high-tech jazz and everything. Yeah, but yeah. Maybe, maybe some people think of them as being a little like militant and hard and, you know, yeah. and rough. And, and, and I love how, melo how melodic this track is, but also just it's got the funk in a huge way, which, like, only, only these guys can do, I that think. That dark Detroit funk. Right, right. exactly. Um, so it's a, a track called Wind Chime. Excellent. Well, you're listening to Eamon Harkin and Clean Cosmo Murphy on a Cosmodelica Mr. Saturday Night Takeover on the Lot Radio and Worldwide FM. <laughs>
Uh, a record was released, released on Warp Records in 1990. Mm -hmm. um, so it was actually a little before my time, but I picked it because, it, it, like, at that time when I was living in London, like, their records and, like, that sound was so prevalent. Um, and, it, you know, that record I would have heard many times on the system at Fabric, so it yeah. was like... I would, I would generally go to Fabric on on Fridays rather than Saturdays because mm -hmm. um, it had a little bit more of a sort of a diverse flow. It wasn't just this house and techno kind of oriented. Yeah, yeah, like Room 2 was always drum and bass yeah. with um, the guys on the mic and like the energy in that room and like the sweat and the <laughs> heat coming out of that room was just, it felt so London. It felt really... Um, like that was the only place you would get that experience right and then room three would have been like you know pretty kind of like broken beat mm, I was really thing. into that scene yeah so so there yeah you have it there, there you have it mm -hmm. so let's back up now we were talking when you you know met Justin you start throwing your own parties and uh, what was it like in the in the, the early noughties throwing parties in Brooklyn and creating things? I mean, it, it must have had a lot of challenges to kind of like figure out how to do this pretty much from scratch. Um, yes, I mean, I, I'll give credit to, to Justin really um, sort of paving the, the way for us because before he and I had done things together, he had done a number of loft parties. Mm. Um, and he was like, this is what we should do. We shouldn't keep trying to work with clubs where we can't have a working relationship around the important things. It was very like, it was very kind of like, it was very much sort of a business conversation. And then when you try to have a conversation about how security should interact with customers. And yeah, like that's drink, good, and that's a good point. It's drink well, prices. very important as I always say. Yeah. First people that greet the dancer. Absolutely. Um, so I was like, okay, let's that, that all makes sense. Let's let's do it. Um, so you know, we, we bought a sound system and we just went out looking for these spaces. I love it. Um, and you know, almost all the parties were illegal because there was no way of doing a legal party. Um, I think I went to one actually because I had come over and I think it was Africa Bambata. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so blown away by the attention to detail because it was some warehouse in Brooklyn. I took a taxi and I didn't know where I was going. And I went by myself as well. And, um, you know, they had someone holding a torch, a flashlight on the stairs so people wouldn't fall down. I was like, that, and it stuck with me. Right, yeah, That was yeah. like a really high, you know, it was like a very good attention to detail that was very important for the safety of the people. And I thought I felt the security were really nice as well. So, well done. Thank you. Well done. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, well, you know, I mean, I, I can't say that I was ever super comfortable with having to do parties that way, but we were so passionate about doing something that we accepted those risks. But we always tried to be super responsible um, within the context of what we were working with. So I think that's a really good example. We were like, okay, the people coming to this party have got to go up this step and there's no lights. So like yeah. your job, Mr. Security Guard, is to make sure that there's a light on these steps and nobody falls down and like hurts mm -hmm. themselves. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to let you keep another record. And um, But when we come back, uh, I'd love to talk to you about 
nowadays because I think oh, yeah. that's how this is all kind of culminated. And uh, this is Clean Cosmo Murphy and Eamon Harkin, uh, Worldwide FM and the Lot Radio with a Mr. Saturday Night and Cosmodelica takeover.
Light FM with Eamon Harkin from Mr. Saturday Night and myself, Queen Cosmo Murphy from Cosmodelica. And we were chatting before how you and Justin were throwing these kind of illegal parties. But as we know how the nature, how um, you know, urban development happens when a creative kind of presence takes place in a neighborhood, that's when things start to get gentrified. And I was all, when I moved away, I used to live in Brooklyn in the 80s and the 90s. And then when I came back from London so many years later, I was shocked to see Williamsburg, like, oh my gosh, what's happened over here? And uh, just the whole kind of transformation of Brooklyn, which is still absolutely amazing, but it's definitely changed. And it seems like promoters had to kind of go a bit more above board. Um, yeah, I mean, the the story of gentrification in Brooklyn um, has been kind of astounding over the last, um, 10 years and you know I think it's a really complicated topic it is. Um, you know we first and foremost we are gentrifiers right yeah. like we go we go to neighborhoods that have the kind of space that allows us to do our thing in terms of you know parties and um, and make a, a ton of noise without being noticed mm -hmm. and um, when you do that for long enough like other artists who do interesting things in these these parts of, of, of cities like New York, and this is you know, obviously a global phenomenon at this point, um, it attracts um, you know further waves of of, of uh, different people coming to do things, and then ultimately you know real estate people, and before you know it, there's sort of luxury condos everywhere. So it's very much this like sort of continuum. Um, sort of continual pr uh, process that you know you find yourself somewhere along that mm. that 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 line, um, and so for us we you know we we were we went to places and find ourselves having to move on because of um, complaints, noise complaints, and uh, actually n not so much noise complaints, but just like the the nature of big real estate. So yeah. you know we. We were at the spot in Gowanus where we did the the, the original Mr. Sunday, mm -hmm. and then that got sold to a big property developer to uh, build a big luxury condo complex. And then we moved to Industry City, which is this massive complex down by the water in Sunset Park mm -hmm. um, that is was starting to undergo a massive sort of real estate transformation strategy by a, like a fairly large corporate group. Um, and they were happy to have us there to begin with because we made we made it cool. Yeah. But then they made it clear to us that we weren't um, no longer welcome. We, we, yeah, they, they they weren't going to let us do anything long term because I think they had their sights set on, on on bigger fish. So at that point, we we decided that we needed to take matters into our own hands if we wanted to continue to do this. Um, and so we started looking for space that we could we could. Um, go into on a longer term basis and we spent a number of years looking and we eventually found the property that um, where nowadays is and um, you know took, took a took a 10 year lease on it which was a big piece of paper to sign um, really like lost a lot of sleep over making that decision um, and then just threw ourselves into the the project that that that, that was and is, is building nowadays to be, um, uh, you know, kind of hub of dance music culture in, in New York. 
I, hear, um, I only hear good things about it. Well, oh, thank you. Um, it's uh, we're super happy with how it's going. Um, it's it's been a lot of work, but it's so rewarding to like see see what we're doing, sort of really scale and expand and, and, and directions that really go way beyond anything to do with Mr. Saturday Night or Mr. Sunday. Um, with really working with the broader community of DJs and artists that exist in New York and like providing, working to provide a platform for their thing. Um, and that, that's been the best part. Yeah, it's um, that sense of community. Yeah, it? yeah. And support of the community. I think yeah. that's it, it, it's really it's really cool and it's hard in New York because you know New York's a very competitive city and really? everybody I yeah. never knew that <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to tell you that um, and so everybody you know everybody's hustling and everybody's yeah. got their thing going on and you're sitting down and you're, you know you're trying to, to work together and there's a lot of sort of competing forces um, at play but I really think that we've got like a strong sort of hub right now of, of people coming through and doing cool things and uh, we just we just try and stay focused on that because yeah. um, I think everything else falls into place once you've got well I think you're doing a wonderful yeah. job and I really applaud you I really do and Thank I think you what you much. and Justin have done is really incredible I love that DIY kind of spirit. It's like, hey, if it ain't happening, we're just going to make it. And mm -hmm. I, I just really think that's absolutely wonderful. So thank you. Well done, you. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. So uh, I guess we'll start with one of um, a tune that really inspired me from my early days of going out to parties in New York.
Hey, hey, this is Eamon Harkin from Mr. Saturday Night on The Lot Radio. And I'm very happy to have Colleen Cosmo Murphy in the house as our special guest. Um, Colleen has just interviewed me, interviewed me for the last hour, and I will attempt to do um, somewhat of a similar job to her. She's got way more experience <laughs> at this radio game than I do. Um, so welcome, Thank Colleen. you. Great Thank to have you. you. Um, so this is uh, Dexter Wanzel, mm. Life on Mars, mm. which is a big loft classic, right? It is a very yeah. big loft classic. And it's one of those songs when I first went into the loft, I think it was uh, in the early 90s. I still don't know the year. Could have been 91. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, yeah. In any case, I remember I was more of a, you know, I was into psychedelic rock and I was into indie stuff and I was into electronic music as well. But I hadn't really heard that kind of like psychedelic soul before and it just when I heard that song I remember running out to my friend John Hall and saying what is this what is this and it was just one of those records that really stuck with me because it had all these kinds of emotions and this kind of cosmic sensibility and this funk and this psychedelia that really just intrigued me but it you know, it's kind of heady at the same time, quite physical as well. So mm-hmm. and that's the kind of music that I really love to dance to. Something that has a few different levels. It was it was produced in 1976, um, and yeah, I just absolutely love that song. And it's one of the songs I, if I didn't want to repeat myself, I would play it every single party that I play at. Right. You know, right. but well, I mean, I try to hold myself back. It's a phenomenal record. I mean, yeah. I don't think many people would complain about hearing that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And we did put it on the loft compilations that David and I produced. So that right. it was a, it's just such a, I just said, we have to get that record on there. It's right. just absolutely wonderful. Um, so w- we, we talked in the first hour a lot about, um, you know, my journey to New York from, from Ireland via London. And in some ways you've kind of had like the reverse I know. Journey. We were like waving to each other okay. in the plane in, in over planes. the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your your early days in New York? Okay. Because that, that that was a time that, like, I never, I didn't come to New York until 2003 for the mm. first time. So I'm, I'm always very curious about people's experiences of, like, the 80s and the yeah. 90s in New York. So yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, I moved here in 1986. I went to NYU. And it was the week that I turned 18, actually, that I moved to New York City. And as I'm standing here at the Lot Radio on this beautiful New York City afternoon in Brooklyn, I'm looking over, the, seeing the Manhattan skyline, and I'm seeing the Empire State Building, where I used to work when I was in university oh, wow. on weekends at 19 years old. And I was taking photos, those cheesy kind of portraits of, you know, the Empire. State building backdrop. I did that, and I also uh, did make keychains, pressed pennies, and made them into keychains. That's what I did, and I can just see the Empire State yeah, Building right there. And yeah. it was beautiful because some nights I was sitting there on my own with the clouds around and this be- all the lights coming up. It felt like it was my castle in the middle of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Any case, New York City was a very different time back then. Uh, it was wonderful. It was um, very still very creative. I think New York City is always creative, but this is pre-Giuliani days. <laughs> you have the pre, during, and post-Giuliani. Right. It made such a mark on New York City. Um, and, you know, you still had the vestiges of really cool downtown culture. A lot of it had moved to Williamsburg by then. So you had a lot of the artists had already moved out of New York City, uh, of Manhattan proper. 
Although the Lower East Side in Alphabet City, it still was Alphabet City. And I came along, I was really inspired by music and I had done radio in high school and worked in record shops. So when I came here from Massachusetts, it was just an amazing kind of playground for me. And, um, you know, I used to go to places like CBGB's and Tramps, and I was much more into that kind of the indie kind of scene, post-punk scene. Mm -hmm. I was on WNYU. I did several radio shows, including psychedelic 60s radio shows, Kraut Rock, New Afternoon Show, which was more of a uh, kind of like the current, we didn't have the word alternative music at that time. So I would just say, underground music right and uh in the early 90s i found myself going to david mancuso's loft party i mean i had been to a lot of clubs like tracks and different places and i always had a good time but it wasn't something that changed my life where i thought okay i must collect this music i must play this music i must you know get into this scene but with the loft and david's party i really felt it was a whole transformation, as it is for so many other people. Right. Um, well, and so what, what specifically was different oh about my that, gosh. that first experience versus the other places you've been going to to like enjoy the same music? Well, I think the whole psychedelia meets dance music thing was a big thing for me because I was into psychedelic rock. I had a radio show called Plastic Tales from the Marshmallow Dimension. Quite embarrassing, right. I know. But right. in any I case... It. It's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> in any case, so... The sensibility was there. It was a sense of community, a safe space. I went with a friend of mine, my friend uh, who no, is no longer with us by the name of a uh, Adam Goldstone. And he brought me there for the first time. I actually didn't live too far away. And um, I started going on my own after that. And I felt completely safe doing that as a you know very young 20, one, 22 year old woman. Mm -hmm. And 2223. And uh, the sound system as well was the other thing for me. I, I had studied sound. I was producing syndicated radio shows at the time. I was engineering. I was editing tape. I was on that kind of sound, the recording right. side of sound and the mixing side of sound, but not on the reproduction side of sound. And I had never heard records played over a system like that before and it really was quite a magical experience including this one that we're listening to right now uh, I have to say this is one of the records when I listen to it it can almost just talking about it can like you know make me well up but it's it brings me back to those days on third street um, to so, David's so place what, what, what record is this? this is code 718 Equinox the, the Heavenly Club mix it was produced by Danny Tenaglia has keys by Peter Dow Danny was doing so much great work and Peter Dow of course he, they were collaborating a lot um, and Danny had that beautiful kind of sense of soulfulness with this beautiful melodic keys by Peter Dow and a, a certain sense of toughness as well with the beats. And of course it samples Manuel Gottsching's E2, E4 and um, like so many other records like Suena Latino and so many other records have because it's a great, you know, it's a, it's a great improv that Manuel did. So I hear this and I, I can just close my eyes and just picture myself in the middle of David's dance floor on East 3rd Street. Awesome. Should we listen to it? Yeah, let's, let's listen it. to it.
So if I'm not mistaken, this is Plastic Dreams by JD. Hmm, you know this track? <laughs> you heard it before? I, I may have heard this track, but I, ne- <laughs> I never, ever tire of hearing this track. So, I know, it's exactly. That the sh- We just said it off mic, the, the shuffle mm-hmm. when it comes in for the first time. It's a fun track to dance to. It's oh. a great track for the dancers because it's not just that fourth, like, doom, doom, doom. Right. So it's a really fun track to dance to. And it's so interesting because the first time I heard it was at the shelter. And I had been out all night. I don't know where I'd been. I could have been at the loft before. I could have been at um, Save the Robots. I could have done my kind of club migration from from place to place and then party to party. Uh, But I ended up at the shelter. And Timmy Registered, of course, was playing. And I heard this track. And it didn't sound. So Timmy played this. Timmy played it twice. Oh, wow twice and both times i danced my ass off i was just like oh my it's a it's a song because the the bass the sounds it's really psychedelic as well an electronic kind of way um but as i because the drums are shuffly it makes it it makes you dance and relax your body in a different way and as djs we know when we're watching dancers you have to kind of change tempos you have to change the beat to make people relax into things and to dance in different ways otherwise it's just always the same kind of robotic kind of moves yeah. And I thought it was just an astounding track. And I remember it was a Sunday morning, you know, I ended up going back home and waiting until 12, 1 o'clock until all the record shops opened. I called all the record shops. Do you have this record? Do you have this record? And finally, 8-Ball, I think it was, had the last original RNS you know, last copy in New York City. <laughs> and I went down and I snagged it and that's still the record that I have today. And wow. I just, just absolutely loved it. And it's just so great that Timmy Registered played it because it's not a track that you would as- right. it's normally a associate. For, yeah. For like his more soulful high signs. Exactly. Right. Because yeah. he was mainly playing a lot of Blaze kind of stuff in New Jersey stuff, which I loved and all mm-hmm. those gospely kind of vocals, those mid-90s vocals and, you know, really coming from the church and really beautiful and wonderful and, of course, the classics. And to hear him play this this European import was quite something and not only once but twice right so that it was really it was a special moment that, that's awesome um w- one thing i'm really curious uh about with respect to that time period was how it felt to be dancing through into the morning in new york because you know right now i think we've got a very vibrant and strong scene which is which is great you know we're, we're all very grateful for that but we don't yet have that like experience of dancing through the night into the day and yeah. in, in the way that existed back in oh, those days in so new york fun. and it kind of exists in other cities today so yeah berlin I, and I, tokyo I, and yeah right and, and i think about that and whether we can bring those days back so how did it feel it, it was amazing because you take your disco nap you know, and you might go out at midnight or two in the morning and you'd be out and then you'd probably stay up the whole day then mm-hmm. and then crash on Sunday night and then go to your job on, on Monday. But the records that you can play, we you know, as DJs uh, or as musical hosts, is they're different. You, you can play and experience and dance to music at 5 a.m. much differently than you can at 11 p.m. It's just... Right. The times of day, all these different circumstances influence how we enjoy music, whether we're the ones like, you know, putting the records on or dancing to it on the dance floor. And 
I find those later hours or the earlier hours, I should say, in this in this case. I think there's probably a certain sense of abandonment of the ego mm -hmm. a bit more. Right. And I love that kind of winding down and that sense of freedom. So if you're playing records at 11, 12, you feel like you still have to be on that peak kind of high. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about 11, 12 at night. Right. 11 and 12 the next morning. That's a whole different ballgame. It's ball a game. whole different ballgame. <laughs> yeah, you can be playing like music from outer space, you know, so right. music from Sun Ra or the Orb or whatever. And I just love that kind of freedom. And I feel that when I go to Japan, because in Japan you can do a nine hour set, a 12 hour set, and just go on and on and on because the licensing laws are very different. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm very happy that I got to experience New York. Uh, at that, that time and in that way, yeah. Yep. Um, a couple years back, Justin and I finished the day at Panorama Bar. And we did a nine-hour set from midnight to, to 9 a.m. And, and um, it, it was a really amazing experience of, um, of playing in that way. And we've, I think we've had a few experiences of doing it in New York when we were doing the illegal law parties yeah. where, you know, you can just keep going. but Because yeah, it's illegal anyways. Right. <laughs> You've broken a few rules. Let's just keep breaking a few hey, more. Hey, just keep breaking some, yeah, break some more. Break some more. Break some more. But I think it's just a sort of like regular thing. Um, it'd, be, it'd be really cool to have something like that. Yeah, so, it would be. It really would be. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. So what have you got next for us? Okay, well, let's move over to London then, shall okay, we? Yes. So I moved from New York City to London in 1999. And um, for various reasons, and I, partly Giuliani, I could say was definitely part of this decision. I felt New York City was kind of going, oh, you know, the club scene, the party scene was really difficult. I mean, David was having his challenges with the law parties as well. That should, that should be said. Uh, but everybody were, was having their challenges. And... It was just a very difficult time for having clubs and parties in New York City. And I was in a relationship at the time uh, and with a, with a Brit, we decided to move to the UK. It's always a place that has kind of loomed large in my psyche. My grandmother was English and she was a war bride. So it wasn't like completely out of the question for me to like move to the UK. Right. Uh, also, I was a fan of English music and British music, not just English music, but British music growing up, especially from Manchester, it has right. to be said. Course, so yeah. um, so I've always been a big fan of the UK music scene. And plus, I also played a lot of imports. You know, I worked at Dance Tracks in New York City, and uh, we had a lot of great imports. I had radio shows here on W1YU during the 90s. And I think my shows were... My radio shows were kind of different from other radio shows in that I did play a lot of the New York kind of deep underground house music, but I also turned to the UK as well, and to France, and to Japan as well. So I also played a lot of imports. So moving to the UK was a really great experience. I felt, you know, dance music was much more embraced there. We did the loft compilations with David on Newphonic at the same time. We did those in 1999 and 2000. And uh, in 2003, we started a party, myself, uh, Tim Lawrence, Jeremy Gilbert, Adrian Fillory, and Nikki Lucas started a party with David called Lucky Cloud. And this next track that I'm going to play is, is a song that uh, David did play 
One of the reasons I really love it is because it's from like an indie band, the Gorillas, Damon Albarn from Blur. Um, and it's a remix by DFA, James Murphy. It was kind of melding these worlds that I really loved. And I'm so sad that I kind of missed that whole kind of DFA thing. So I moved here from 1999 and I love what James was doing because he was kind of crossing that indie kind of punk ethic with dance music. And those, those were like kind of two worlds that I really embraced that were uniting and he really united very well. And I also think it is very psychedelic. Absolutely. So, All right, let's hear it. Let's have a
hello. So this is uh, Eamon Hargan from Mr. Saturday Night with Colin Cosmo Murphy. Um, we're doing a special show, obviously here on the Lot Radio, but this show will also be broadcast on Colleen's show on Worldwide FM. Yeah, Worldwide um, FM. Uh, Colleen and I are playing a festival in London the end of August. Yeah, yeah 20, on my birthday. On your birthday. So, so, you, so you, you'll should know the tell date, people I where to send presents. No, it's, it's uh, August 24th. August 24th. Yeah. And yeah. it's called One Day at the Disco. At the Disco. Um, who else is playing? You know, Inner City are doing a live set. Okay, Todd yeah. Terrier is also playing. Um, those are the names that I remember along with you. Uh, too Many DJs. Are they playing as well? Um, Derek Carter, I oh, think, Derek is Oh, Derek Carter is playing as yeah. well. Yeah, that's right. So should be for, for those in London or those that will be in London at that time, Yeah, should be a good day out. Um, so we, we just listened to the DFA remix of Gorillaz, which has relevancy... relevancy mm to you because of its the, the, the manner it was played by, by David Mancuso mm. with The Loft. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about well, that? Well, yeah. I mean, he played it. I played it as well. A lot of my friends played it. it. But the thing that I really like about it is that it was kind of marrying the indie kind of rock underground rock world with dance music in a very kind of psychedelic way. And I think what James Murphy was doing at that time, and still does, was really interesting. I'm quite sad that when I left New York, it's kind of when he was, you know, started his rise to stardom. I mean, he was here around the same time, but he was like engineering different indie bands and stuff. Right. So he yeah. wasn't really on my radar at that point. So anytime a DFA mix was coming out in the in the early noughties, I was always checking out to see, you know, what it sounded like. And it was always something that, you know, kind of took things to a different level and a different heady space, which I really, really appreciated. And that, on a great sound system, sounds fabulous. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so how did it go down at the loft? Well, at the Lucky Cloud Party, I never heard it play. I never oh, heard David No, okay, I never heard right. David play at the loft because I was already in the UK. Right, so it, it's an anthem. Right. Yeah, it's an yeah. anthem. Because I think also in Lucky Cloud, you know, obviously there's slight differences between Lucky Cloud and The Loft. I, and even though David was the musical host um, for us until he stopped traveling uh, and he founded the party with us and we had the similar ethos the the uh, the the dancer the dance floor is obviously from a slightly different generation because david started his parties here in new york you know nearly 50 years ago right yeah and a lot of those some of those people are still coming to the parties um our party started in 2003 so right. it, it's a different generation so you have that mm -hmm. um different culture i think both of us have you know lived in two different continents and in yeah. two different countries so we understand how things in the uk are different to things in the usa Indeed, yes. and um also i just think also indie electronic music probably has a greater root in europe in some sense than it does here in the mm -hmm. usa um so the response in london was phenomenal, but I think you've heard it. I think you heard David play it here at the Loft. Well, yeah, in New York, we were just so. saying um, when it was playing off off mic that I heard it. I heard David play it at the Loft, mm. um, probably like eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and you asked me 
What was the response? What was the response? And I couldn't tell you because I was just so in my own head. With <laughs> That's my, where you should be. That's response. good. Good answer. Good answer. Um, because it sounded amazing and it was a real surprise for me to hear him play it because I wasn't expecting him to Good. play it. And that's what, that's um, great. And it was, you know, it was awesome. It was really, 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 really great. Um, but I'm curious um, how your experience of playing at the Loft versus Lucky Cloud has been over the years in terms of like being able to sort of introduce new music or like mm. just the sort of the response, the, the, the kind of response we're talking mm -hmm. about with with this track. Has it? Do you, does it feel different? I mean, David and I used to talk about this actually quite a bit. He used to say to me, "You and I are the only people that have played the London parties and New York parties and the parties in Japan." Mm -hmm. And we talked about how each of them were very different experiences. N number one being different times of day. So in Japan, like you're playing for my friend uh, Satoru over in Fillmore North when he had Fillmore North. You know, he has, uh, with the whole clip shorn setup. Um, you could go to 9, 10, 11 in the morning, kind of like the old loft parties that David had in his own home uh, when he didn't have to rent a place. And it was a very different aesthetic. Also, playing in Japan is a very different aesthetic. You, For me, uh, as a culture, I lived in Japan in 1989, and I've always found that it's a very... Uh, it's a culture that embraces craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, perfection, subtlety, nuance, and there's a certain profoundness, a profundity, I suppose, that I haven't found in many other cultures. So there's a different experience playing there where I feel I could go very deep. Right, yeah. Um, in the UK, uh, there's another different experience. People I found as a culture were more aware of underground music than as a culture in the USA. I was surprised when I moved there that you could hear very underground, what we would call underground house tunes that were coming out of New York were actually on Radio 1 there right. and just yeah. being broadcast and people were listening to them in office buildings. So or, I was like, or, oh. Or going to number one. Yeah, exactly. Charts. I right. mean, Masters yeah. at Work being number one. I mean, right. it, it was just astounding to me. So there's a very deep kind of rooted culture that um, where people, you know, ha they, they understand that on a mass kind of level. Um, so and also there's that kind of whole indie crossover. My experiences here in New York, the thing that I love here in New York is there's a whole kind of a melting pot of cultures. And, you know, you had like uh, African-American dancers on the floor, Latino dancers on the floor, people, you know, from Puerto Rican or Dominican, Dominican Republic heritage, um, all different types of people, uh, you know, people from uh, Japan, you had you know, people like myself and all kind of, I felt just a much more of a melting pot, which I found really, really magical. And the, right. I have to say, the dancing is better in New York City. Right, it yeah. really is. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more with that. I've, I, I often think that one of the real strengths that New York has today, you know, when we consider the, the broader state of dance music culture in New York, which is relatively strong i think it's at its best when it really draws from that heritage I and agree. brings in yep. that um generation and mm. and rubs that generation against the new generation mm. and and creates something new because like the energy that those 
that that generation brings is like it's very different to, well, to, yeah. to and what the, you get today from younger younger folks. Totally. And these are people that are still partying for decades. So, I mean, the thing is, David started his party in 1970. We started our party in London in 2003. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, having a route for nearly 50 years, and people have been coming to a party for nearly 50 years, some of them, or 30 years, or 40 years, or 20 years, or whatever it is. Right. There's a whole history there. And then people are bringing, a, uh, there's, a, there's a greater, a bigger sense of community. But I, the thing that's beautiful is that these communities are budding and, and, and developing all around the world as well. So with the Lucky Cloud Party starting in 2003, like we're the oldest people, the people that started it, you know. Right. Um, and hopefully that will continue going just like the New York parties are going and, and hopefully all of these parties will continue to grow and, and to continue to evolve and to, to keep going. Amen to that. Um, I have one more question on, mm. on this theme before we, we jump into our track. Yeah. Um, obviously, David passed mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, how, how has it been continuing his legacy with The Loft in New York specifically? Well, there's a bunch of us that are doing it. So there's a, there's a whole collective of people that are doing this. David always wanted his parties to continue. I mean, we had a kind of a trial with Lucky Cloud because he stopped coming to Lucky Cloud in 2011. So we kind of experienced this first in a weird way. Mm-hmm. David's presence was still on the planet, but we had to do the party without him. And so we kind of made our way and figured it out without him. Because it wasn't like one day he just said, I'm I'm not coming anymore. It just kind of started to happen. He wasn't able to come for this party. And then he couldn't come to the next party and and things like that. Um, David always wanted these parties to continue. And he always said that nobody owns the loft. And nobody does. It's a community, it's a spirit, it's a feeling. The loft is a feeling is another mm-hmm. thing that he would say. And he didn't even feel like he owned it. He said he was the caretaker. And there's many caretakers of the loft here in New York. Um, it's, it's a collective group effort. Um, and this is an effort that continues and that we will hand on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. I think David's, I think what we should talk more about is David's legacy. And, and David's legacy, some, so many people talk about, oh, the records that he played, which, of course, we put on the loft compilations and that they're really important. And the, and the fact that he supported these records is very important. Of course, what he did for sound systems and elevating uh, people's experience on the dance floor with better sound is very important. It's something that I think is really taking root around the world right now with more audiophile systems. But I think his greatest contribution is the sense of community. And I honestly feel this way. I feel this way about Lucky Cloud. I feel this way about the parties in Japan. I feel this way about the parties we do in, in Italy with Last Note. I feel, and obviously I feel that way about the parties here in New York City. These are families. Right. And the, they're deeply rooted. And it's about the community first and foremost more than any record that's played more than any kind of cartridge that you're using or any kind of speaker that is number one and that is the greatest legacy that david has left us and this is something that should continue to evolve and i hope our children you know take it on and 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 keep it going in in this kind of positive kind of ethos Amen, once again. <laughs> All right, you want to 
Yeah, you know, I thought I'd play. Yeah, this is the last track we're going to play. And it's something that I just got sent. Um, and it's something I, I heard that I thought, oh, why don't we play something that's new and very, very, very recent? But it also does tie into the loft, as we were just saying. You know, there's one track that was played um, that David used to play that I absolutely loved in the early 90s by uh, an Italian producer by the name of Don Carlos. And it was a song called Alone. And this, I think, is a different version. He's called it Alina. So, but it sounds like alone, and but it's a new version, and I just think it's absolutely gorgeous. I think he's a, f a phenomenal producer, and I thought this was kind of a nice way to close the show with something that's really quite new. Um, well, I'll just end by saying it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Colleen. I really enjoyed our uh, our chats. Thank you so much for coming in, and thank you so much for having me, and thank you for being on my radio show too on Worldwide FM as well. It's been, so it's, it's been, been awesome, a yeah. pleasure to meet you I'll, and to hang out. I'll see you in London. See you in London. All right, All right. Take, <laughs> take care.